If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Thank you for being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, with another episode. And this week, we are going to get in the DeLorean and go back to the future for a little TV nostalgia. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you recognize this TV theme? Well, of course you do. It's the Dick Van Dyke Show theme. The Dick Van Dyke Show was not only a groundbreaking sitcom, it is still being watched and loved today, and it's maybe the reason why I became a writer. Well, that and free food. I'm going to be speaking with Vince Waldron today. Now, he wrote the book, the official Dick Van Dyke Show book, The Definitive History of Television's Most Enduring Comedy. And it must be definitive because it says so right in the title. I also have some personal reflections of the Dick Van Dyke Show, including a discussion that I once had with the real Laura Petrie on her sex life with Rob. How's that for a tease? Okay, so uh, let's sidestep the Ottoman and get going. Hollywood and the Vine. So the Dick Van Dyke Show was done over 50 years ago. It's in black and white. Society norms have changed, and yet it is still just an icon. It is still in reruns, and it is still beloved to this day. Why do you think that is? They were real people. They were relating to each other. They were friends. It was, there was a, a palpable sense that these were grown-up people who actually cared about each other. And you felt like any great sitcom, you were in their world and they invited you into their world. But unlike a lot of the contemporaneous sitcoms of that era, Mm -hmm. their world resembled ours. It wasn't such a leap. There was a very strong sense on that show that these these were lived-in worlds. And so it was easier then. And I think that's why now, even though it's 50 years ago and the fashions are, you know, different and it's, we don't watch black and white anymore, we can still enter into that world because Rob and Laura and all the people in that world are present and it's real to them and it's real to us. Well, one thing that's very different then as opposed to now is now if you have a hit TV comedy like, say, Friends, then all of a sudden there's going to be 15 or 25 Friends clones But the Dick Van Dyke Show, when you think about that show in 1962, 
And it was eventually a hit, and we'll talk about the fact that it originally wasn't. But the point is, there were no other shows like it. I mean, you'd think that there would be all kinds of copycat shows during that period of time. You know, the Buddy Ebsen show or whatever. Well, but, I, I think uh, that they were all stupid other than the Dick Van Dyke show. I think you pointed out there that you alluded to the, uh, the lack of success of that show. Nobody wanted that thing on the air. Nobody at CBS had any faith in it. This was an era when you could get a really strong producer, as they had uh, executive producer Sheldon Leonard, partnered with Danny Thomas, who was able to call the shots and get it on despite the network. And so from the get-go, they had no idea what that show was, and the chemistry of that show and the, and the DNA of that show was not understood by anybody other than Carl Reiner. Even Sheldon Leonard would say, I don't really understand what makes this show good, but Carl's got it and I'm going to let him do it. It was such a product of Carl Reiner's sensibility, his sense of comedy, and it's, it's autobiographical. I mean, even down to the fact that you know he was writing about his own life. There was something in that DNA that people couldn't really replicate, even if they'd wanted to, which begs the question of why would they want to? They had, look at the popular shows. It was it stood alone in the top ten of that era. It was shows like uh, Beverly Hillbillies yeah. and Bewitched. And Bewitched. And, uh, Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island. And These were all shows with fantastical premises, either rural, funny, offbeat, rural. F-troop. Yeah, rural Idiocy. premises like yeah. uh, Camp Petty, all the Paul Henning shows, Green Acres, and the offshoots right. of Beverly Petticoat Hillbillies. Junction. Now, that was good. Petticoat Junction was good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, okay. I, I see what you're saying. Good cast on Petticoat Junction. The cast kept switching every couple right. of years. Right. I think the, the actress has aged out of that ingenue <laughs> very quickly. But you're talking about an era when there was there was no need to replicate the Dick Van Dyke show because you could so much more easily replicate I Dream of Jeannie. Mm-hmm. There were so many more replicable hit shows. Why bother trying to capture lightning in a bottle and Carl's doing it. It's almost like he's got a little cottage industry of doing a real grown-up comedy. There was no emphasis in those days spent on appealing to, certainly not in the sitcom uh, genre, appealing to adult sensibilities. And yet, I watched it as a little kid um, who should not have been able to understand. If it's such an adult, sophisticated show, then why was I, as a little kid, watching it on Wednesday nights, entranced by it? And that's the secret. And for me, as a kid who couldn't throw a spiral and was not great in sports... It's like, oh, wait a minute, you can be a comedy writer and get a hot babe like Laura Petrie? <laughs> this is what I want to do. A career arc was life. born. <laughs> yeah. Now, you talked about how CBS didn't want the show originally. No. And at the time, CBS was run by a real dick named James Aubrey. And he didn't like the show. And the show actually didn't do very well when it first came on. And they were going to cancel it after the first year, but they were able to get a reprieve through sort of an unorthodox way. Well, the, the, the network had their knives out. I mean, just James Aubrey, they, his nickname was the Smiling Cobra. So it wasn't just Sheldon Leonard that had trouble with him. Everyone in the industry... No, he was an asshole. Know, they yeah. just knew. He, mm-hmm. You probably dealt with him because he was around forever, right? I mean, no, I, no, I didn't deal but with you, him. But yeah. you heard about him. Yeah, I'm not that old. The knives were out for the Dick Van Dyke show. And when the ratings didn't really register in the first season, it was canceled. It was all but officially canceled. In those days, was sort of a, you had a slow cancel. Um, and so they knew... <laughs> 
knew when they were wrapping up. It was on hospice up. care. <laughs> it was on hospice care. Yeah. And as they were wrapping up the season, all the actors were just determined to find another job because, and the crew was looking elsewhere. Sure. And it was Sheldon Leonard, who was this executive producer, who, by the way, he ran three or four different hit shows. This was the only show on his roster that was really on life support. And he loved this show. And he took it upon himself to fly to Cincinnati, the headquarters of the sponsor, who was Procter Procter and Gamble. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to go to there, into the inner sanctum of the decision makers, and I'm going to pitch this show and make sure they they bring it on as a sponsor for a second season. And the key back then was finding a sponsor, because if you had a sponsor willing to put the money forth to buy that half hour, CBS's concerns were secondary. And so he... Sheldon Leonard went basically over the head of the network and, and went directly to the sponsor who really called the shots. And it worked. By the time he got back to California, he had 100% sponsorship in the show. And he went to CBS and said, we've got sponsors. You've got to put us on this schedule. And the network still resisted until he called uh, Procter & Gamble and said, hey, listen, you guys do a lot of advertising in daytime with what they call soap operas. They're called soap operas for a reason because Procter & Gamble makes soap. Why don't you call my friend James Aubrey and tell him that you're not happy he's not going to put your Dick Van Dyke show on while you're sponsoring all of the days of our lives and all the things they've got in daytime. And that was the final argument was we are – the threat was we're going to pull our advertising from your daytime shows if you don't let us have this nighttime show. It worked. Now, originally it was a pilot that Carl Reiner wrote and starred in himself and the pilot didn't really go and you figure – Boy, there's a guy who has quite an ego in check that he is willing to fire himself, basically, to bring in somebody else who will play himself even better. But there were other choices other than Dick Van Dyke. They were thinking about Johnny Carson, weren't they? They mentioned that Johnny Carson was at that time, I think it was really a game show host. Yeah. I mean, he was a guy mm-hmm. with a lot of personality, but he wasn't not a proven, he's not a right. proven analyst on to tell the truth. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. but they, they wanted somebody who would seem self effacing and almost shy until it was time to pitch a, pitch a bed or something as Rob would be called upon to do. And so their list was rather short. They were looking for people who were self effacing, who could do physical comedy and were, you know, basically good looking every men. And so Carson was on the short list, but there was no question as soon as Leonard, Sheldon Leonard, had remembered seeing Dick Van Dyke in a review he'd done a year or so earlier. In fact, Sheldon was thinking of trying to bring Van Dyke into the Danny Thomas show when they were, when they were casting. They needed a young man to go out with Danny's daughter, his, his young 22-year-old daughter. No, I was going to say uh, Angela Cartwright? And they, no, like five-year-old Dan, Angela Dan Cartwright an and daughter. Dick Van Dyke? We forget it because they wrote her out of the show. <laughs> right. But they ended up casting Pat Harrington. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jr. in the role of basically Danny Thomas's son-in-law, and Sheldon was running Danny Thomas's show. He thought about bringing Dick Van Dyke in for that and said, oh, Dick's a little too old to play that role, but I'm going to find something for this guy. And so when Carl's show surfaced a, a year or two later, Sheldon had a hunch that this Van Dyke guy might be right, and fortunately by that time, Van Dyke had proven himself worthy by starring in Bye Bye Birdie on Broadway. Right. And so there was a perfect, they didn't need to prove anything to anybody. All Sheldon had to do was fly Carl out to see Dick and Bye Bye Birdie, and by the middle of the first act, Carl said, "We've got our, we've got our Rob Petrie." It was done. <laughs> and now Laura Petrie, Mary Tyler Moore, lots and lots of women auditioned for that part, and Mary at the time was fairly inexperienced and also considerably younger 
than Dick Van Dyke. Was that an issue? You know, it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of, uh, since Mary's uh, death earlier this year, I started looking back at her career and the mythology that even I accepted because I heard it straight from her and everyone around her that she was green and in the industry and almost ready to quit because it was such a tough time for a young actress. Turns out she had an immense career for somebody who was 23 going on 24. By that time, she'd been in drama. She'd been in comedy. She'd been in, uh, she'd been a pitch woman for, uh, she had a- The hot point She had a a happy hot point. She had a very good career for somebody of that age. Uh, She didn't do a, hadn't done a lot of comedy, that's true, but she had a lot of uh, background on screen. So going into that, I think that was her secret weapon, is that she knew her way around a set. She figured she could handle this comedy, and so when she was thrown in with these veterans, uh, Rose Marie, Maury Amsterdam, Richard Deacon, Carl Reiner was there coaching her, uh, Dick Van Dyke, she fit right in and rose to the, I mean, she was, uh, within within the first episode, they said, oh my gosh, we've got something more here that we can develop, Mm -hmm. and then she developed into really the co-star of the show. And originally, Rose Marie thought she was going to be the co-star. So there was a little okay, bit of Okay, now let's get into there. some dish here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Rose Marie did not love Laura Petrie the way America did. Well, there was obviously going to be some tension on the set. Because here you had Rose Marie, who'd been in the business literally since she was three years old. Right. She had done everything. She'd done nightclubs. She'd done sitcoms. She'd done games. She'd done she was drama. what, in her she'd 40s done then? She 50s? was probably I mean, she's, she's into her 40s. 128 now. So. She's into her 40s. Yeah. And so she's an established veteran actress. And Sheldon called her first when he had this pilot from that, that Carl had written for himself. He was recasting it. He said, oh, Rose Marie would be perfect for this writer. And so they called in Rose Marie and she was cast on the spot. She recommended Maury Amsterdam. They had half their cast right there. She was told, hey, listen, this is going to be a show about writers. And remember, too, in those days, there weren't many shows that had two arenas. I mean, the Dick Van Dyke show was rather groundbreaking in that it not only acknowledged what the guy, the main guy did, it actually showed it. Now, Rose Marie could be forgiven for assuming it's, an, it's a show about a comedy writer. It's going to take place in the comedy room. We're going to have fun. It's just going to be us goofing off and telling jokes. Well, she later found out that when she saw, began to see the scripts come in, that a lot of the action of the show took place in the living room. But as actors will do, she, she was acting in the show she was hired to do. It was going to be a show about comedy writers. So it took a while for her. She had that resistance, as someone would have. They, they're going to be the, she was basically the co-star of the show. Then we have Mary Tyler Moore, who again, I alluded to this earlier, she not only had experience on a set, she had showbiz savvy. She knew where the heat was, and she knew this was a show, this is going to be it for me, this is my chance, and she summoned that, and so there was a real, and I'm sure Rosemarie, being another veteran who knew where the heat was, was in competition with this other young actress. And I think, so there was a little bit of um, something more than competition. It was an actual fight. Remember, too, the show was on life support from the very beginning. They weren't getting rating. There was very little chance they'd get canceled mid-season, but they might well have done a one-season show the way things were looking. Plus, so let's, let's be real. Okay, if TV Guide is going to do a cover of the Dick Van Dyke show, are they going to put Mary Tyler Moore on the cover or Rose Marie? Come on. Carl finally did sit her down and say, listen, essentially the same argument you made. 
I can promote Mary Tyler Moore's legs a lot easier than anyone else's legs on this show. And that was the final argument. And by the second season, when it was renewed, I think a lot of the competition eased off because everybody realized, oh, this is a going concern. There's enough. There's a, the pie is big enough for yeah, everyone. Yeah, once the show is in success, then again, everybody is beloved and, yeah. uh, and things are a lot easier. But when a series begins... I mean, it's kind of customary to just see what the audience is going to respond to, and you write towards that, and sometimes it goes in a different direction. Nobody knew that the Fonz was going to be the breakout character of Happy Days. Nobody knew that Michael J. Fox's character was going to be the breakout in Family Ties. And so the same thing, when the Dick Van Dyke Show began and you saw very clearly that the stories that were working, the stories that were really memorable, were the stories that were at home between Rob and Laura. And I think in Carl's mind, that's always where the show was. Uh, He thought it was a show about a family man who had a very interesting job, which complicated his family life in various ways. And that's pretty much the premise of his show. I mean, and the show could have gone another direction. If, in fact, they had cast someone other than Mary Tyler Moore, who didn't have the chemistry with Dick, or the sheer skill to be able to pull off what she pulled off to give that value added, uh, the show might have gone another direction. I mean, it might have been a show where you saw an occasional scene with Richie and uh, Laura. I mean, you think of another example some years later, Barney Miller tried a two arena show. If you, right. Barney Barbara Miller started Barry out with Barbara Berry as yeah. his wife. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the pilot was a, a film show where they had equal emphasis. And once, that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Once Barney Miller started, it was obvious that the excitement of that show was all in that room, in that squad room. There's no need to have the wife. And in fact, they wrote her out of the series after a couple of years. There's no need to have Barbara Berry even in the show. It wasn't important. Barney's home life didn't matter. Well, that could I suppose it could have gone that way with Dick Van Dyke show if indeed they didn't have the magic they needed. Carl would have been smart enough to go, well, the fun, the funny's in the writer's room. Let me go there. And that might have been the way it went. That wasn't how it worked out. Talking with Vince Waldron about the Dick Van Dyke show. Regular listeners of this podcast know that I've been telling you about Wink.com. And Wink.com, the home delivery wine club, is something that I truly believe in. I use it myself, and I really do love it. What makes Wink different? Well, number one, the convenience. They deliver the wine straight to my door. It's also personalized. They send wine that is personalized to your palate and taste through this palate quiz. And I took it. It's very simple. It really works. The wine they send me is delicious. It's a very unique service. They work with top winemakers and growers from around the world directly to make all of their own wine, and it's only $13 a bottle. Normally, you pay $20 a bottle, so there's also the bargain aspect of it. No risk to you whatsoever. You choose the type and the quantity of bottles. No membership fees or cancellation fees. And it's a 100% satisfaction guarantee. It's quite an idea, isn't it? Well, I would like you to try it. So here's what I'm going to offer you. Go to wink.com, and that's W-I-N-C, wink.com slash Hollywood, and get $22 off of your first order. Also, if you order four bottles or more, they're going to throw in the shipping as well. $22 off your first order. Just go to wink.com slash Hollywood. I sell it because I believe it, and I drink it. 
Hollywood and Levine. Thanks again to Vince Waldron. Well, as you know, I love the Dick Van Dyke Show. And I always wanted to write for the Dick Van Dyke Show. And so a couple of years ago, as an experiment for my blog, I thought, you know what? I'm actually going to write a spec episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show. I'm going to post it on my blog, and then I'm going to send it to Carl Reiner and also to Bill Persky, who was one of the showrunners of the Dick Van Dyke Show, and see if I could get their notes or their thoughts on my script. So I did. And if you go to my blog, go to kenlevine.blogspot.com, go to July 20th, 2015. It's actually in four installments, but you can read the script. Well, Carl Reiner never got back to me, but Bill Persky did, and he had some great notes. Those are also included in a blog post. But it was so bizarre because I was on the phone with Bill Persky for probably 20, 25 minutes, and we were discussing the show and different options, what Rob might do here, what Laura might do there. And I thought to myself, wow, this is like actually being in a story conference on the Dick Van Dyke Show. And there I am with Bill Persky. And by the way, he had some great notes. So if you are a big fan of the Dick Van Dyke Show, I recommend that. Okay, a couple of things. When writing scripts, I tend to picture the show on the air. I don't think of the actors on the set and the cameras and the crews then they're just actors. But when you see it on TV, then they're the characters. So when I was writing The Dick Van Dyke Show, it was really the first time that I pictured a show in black and white, which was very kind of strange. Now, I have never seen the actual set of The Dick Van Dyke Show. They did that colorized version of a couple of episodes last December on CBS, and it looked weird. It kind of looked like Pee-wee's Playhouse with orange couches and bizarre blues in the kitchen. And so I asked Bill Persky, one of the writers, what was the set really like? And he said, that was pretty much it. And of course, in those days, the set was designed for black and white. So it had more to do with the contrast and what would look good in black and white as opposed to the color scheme. So the color scheme was very bizarre and it looked like a Disney Channel show. The other thing I discovered about writing The Dick Van Dyke Show is that the show had two very distinctive styles of comedy within the one show. When they went to the office, there were a lot of jokes. There were a lot of shots. There was the bald Mel Cooley jokes. Buddy was doing jokes on just about everything. But when you went home, when you went to the Petri house, then all of the comedy was very character-based. Then it was all on attitudes. So it was kind of strange mixing the two, especially when I had a scene where Buddy and Sally come to the house. It was kind of like a blending of two distinctive styles. So like I said, The Dick Van Dyke Show was really an inspiration for me and my partner, David Isaacs, when we were starting out in our careers. And they used to run the show every afternoon when we were writing our spec scripts and we would take a break and we would sit down and we would watch the episodes. And you might remember that the writing credits on The Dick Van Dyke Show came at the end. So what David and I would do would be try to guess who wrote the episode based on the writing. Now, the early years, it was very easy because it was usually all Carl Reiner. But then in the later years, you had Bill Persky and Sam Denoff, who later became the showrunners. 
And then there was a team of Gary Marshall and Jerry Belson. And these two guys, and of course, you know who Gary Marshall is. He went on to do The Odd Couple and Mork and Mindy and Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, on and on and on, and then became a huge feature director. And among the movies that he did was Pretty Woman. So it was Gary Marshall and Jerry Belson at the time they were freelance writers. And we always loved their scripts the best. And we were usually able to pick out which was a Marshall Belson script. There was just something about them that was a little nuttier, a little edgier. And in a sense, we kind of modeled ourselves after them because we wanted to be the writers of a show that did scripts that were just 5% better, that there was just some kind of an edge so that if somebody was watching a full season of Cheers or MASH or whatever show we contributed to, that they would go, oh, that's a Levine and Isaac. So that was kind of the standard that we set throughout the career. And it was as a result of Marshall Belson on The Dick Van Dyke Show. Okay, here's my second reflection, and it goes back to what I teased in the very beginning of this podcast. When I did a show along with my partner David Isaacs for Mary Tyler Moore, there was one night when my wife and I had Mary over at the house for dinner. So Mary and I are sitting in the living room, and my wife is in the kitchen, I think, opening a bottle of wine, and Mary and I start talking about the Dick Van Dyke Show. And at one point, she says... Well, you know, we had single beds in our bedroom. And I said, yeah, I remember. And she goes, how am I supposed to fuck Rob? And I have to tell you, hearing that out of the distinctive voice of Laura Petrie in my own living room was completely surreal. I don't know the answer to her question. Obviously, they had Richie, so they figured something out. But still, wow. Like I said, the Dick Van Dyke Show had such an enormous impact on my life. Me and Rob Petrie, when you think about it, we both started out in the Army. We both were disc jockeys before becoming writers. And we both had kids, although neither of mine are named Rosebud. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. Okay, that'll do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Again, if you want to read my Dick Van Dyke show, it was from my blog. You just go to kenlevine.blogspot.com. Go back through the archives. July 20th, 2015 is when it begins. It is a four-part series. Once again, our thanks to Vince Waldron, along with Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. And I will see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.